this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track, but there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. Let's talk positioning. How do you create some unique turf for your company so that not only customers know what makes you unique, but ultimately acquirers want to buy only what they can't easily replicate? And that requires you to have something that's truly unique. My next guest, Andrew Lampa, knows firsthand what it means to change direction from a generic restaurant where he was growing at a around the rate of the economy to a repositioning into an allergy-free, safe place to eat for people who watch what they eat. And it had a profound impact, not only on how his customers perceived his company, but ultimately his attractiveness to a potential acquirer. He also shares two mistakes he made in the negotiation process, which are things to avoid if you get a chance to go through a sale process. Here to tell you his rest of the story is Andrew Lampa. Andrew Lampa, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me, John. Excited to be here. Grand Rapids, Michigan. Is this a college town? I'm trying to remember. Is there some famous college in Grand Rapids? No, there's not. I mean, there's okay. half a, or probably a dozen plus colleges and universities, but but not like a uh, Notre Dame or anything like as that. You, that. As you can be. probably tell, I'm completely ignorant about college sports, <laughs> but Michigan is a big college sports town, isn't it? Aren't there like huge rivalries between, t- but that's not Grand Rapids. No, that's Ann Arbor and, and East Lansing. So we're there. You go bigger than both, but uh, no no major college located here. Warlow, you've re- re- reeled yourself as a complete ignoramus when it comes to college <laughs> sports. What else can I reveal myself as an ignoramus around? Tell me a little bit about the restaurant business because you started a business called Noble. Um, what what kind of restaurant did you have? Yeah, so I purchased what was then actually the 44th Street Diner um, in 04 after graduating college and um, owned it for almost 14 years. When I sold it, we were, I would say, a a leader in the allergy-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, vegan space. Um, It definitely wasn't that case for the majority of those years. Uh, The majority of the years, I would say, we were a very generic family restaurant, uh, mainly serving breakfast and lunch. What made you want to buy a diner? What What was the impetus there? Uh, besides stupidity, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I owned a window cleaning business through college and that was great. And the summer after graduation, I washed windows. It was just residential. So it was mainly spring, summer, and fall and fall came. And I never, I really didn't think what's next. Um, I had a full time, uh, job opportunity at my internship at a church as their IT head of IT that I said, no, I'm good. And in that springtime, I said, I'm going to keep doing my own thing. Um, I don't really want a, a job right now. 
and fall came and my girlfriend at the time, she was like, so Andrew, uh, what are you going to do? You know, you're not going back to school. What's, what's the plan? And I had no clue. Didn't really plan for it. Just was sort of living day by day. Went on a couple job interviews. Didn't find anything that really uh, picked my interest. Saw, opened up the paper, saw a restaurant for sale. Now but how does a college kid with no money, maybe you had money, I don't know, but how do, you, how do you buy a restaurant? Like, that seems crazy. My parents helped me with the financing. Uh, that's okay. pretty much it. You know, it's, it wasn't an astronomical purchase, uh, purchase price. So it was definitely within, it was feasible. Like, you, what'd you pay for it? Do you, do you remember like what you pay for it, either the actual amount or multiple of revenue or like, like how did you, what was the... It was, was under 100,000. Okay. Um, and the, the data, the numbers that were given to me were, I don't think accurate. Um, restaurants have a, a bad history of the owners, especially of small owner operators, not really uh, reporting accurate numbers. And so I probably way overpaid for it. I'll never really know what percentage of, or a multiple of EBITDA that I paid, but uh, no, it was under a hundred thousand and it, uh, it just sort of, made sense. I liked food and I liked owning a business and it was like, Hey, let's, let's give it a try. So how did you structure it with your folks? Did you, they lent you the money? Did they co-sign a loan or how did you actually come up with the cash? They helped the financing and then I paid uh, their financial institution back uh, for and, until I sold. So 14 plus years, almost 14 years. And how did you come to know that they were fudging the numbers or that it wasn't as advertised after the first year owning it. So I bought it in November. So after that following calendar year, um, just comparing his numbers to my numbers, something just didn't make sense. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't doing what I expected it would to do was, was going to do in terms and, of revenue or profitability or what uh, and profits um, revenue was in line, but it was not, nearly as profitable as, as it was claimed, at least to my, to my recollection. And so you have this business, your parents have helped you finance it. Um, tell me the, kind of give me the, the, the cliff notes, the short version of the story from there to, to the year before you ultimately sold it. Uh, you know, I'd be curious to know how it became noble versus 14th. What precipitated that? Tell us, a, you know, Obviously, we don't have time for the whole story, but just give us the, the mountaintops because 14 years is a long time to, to own a business. It is. Um, so I perched it. I pretty much, you know, also it not being profitable, I also did not know what I was doing. So I sort of ran into the ground the following next two years, was paying payroll on credit card practically, went into debt uh, one, one or two years. I think my profits were under five grand total. Um, so it was a... 05, 06, 07, those are some rough, rough learning years. Um, I had cook quit and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm going to work every day and try to sell it. So I think I listed it for the first time in 06. I ended up listing it five or six with five or six different brokers over 10 years. I'm obviously a, a restaurant that's not a business that's not making any money unless you're a uh, social media startup or something like that is not really going to be a, attractive to a buyer. Um, so those are those first four or five years are very lean years, very difficult years, uh, very busy years. I, I added dinners. We were just breakfast and lunch, but I added dinners. I made pretty much every mistake one could make. I chopped my prices, offered every coupon discount just to get to, just to try to get people in the doors. 
Um, I'm reminded of, do you ever watch that? <laughs> I've got to be embarrassed to admit that I ever, I watch it, but you know, Gordon Ramsay does that show where he goes in and like makes over a family. Like, did you, oh, yeah. I'm kind of, and would you describe making all these mistakes? I'm kind of going back in my mind, recalling all those Gordon Ramsay shows when he comes in and starts swearing at the owner saying, you know, thankfully, I don't think my cooler was nearly as disgusting as oh, some yeah. of the ones that are on that show. But uh, as far as the PNL, it, it would have been a, a worthwhile phone call for me to make to see if I could get on the show. But you turned this business around. How did you do that? I did. So in 09, we moved locations. I was month to month on my lease and that made me very nervous at my previous location. And it was a standalone, which was great, but the, I was just nervous. If I did one wrong thing, the landlord would be like, okay, you're out next month. And then now I have all this debt and no building to, to house my equipment. So I moved locations and told the landlord, Hey, I'm planning on selling. Um, so let's put in the lease uh, more favorable quote unquote language. So when I do want to sell, it's possible uh, that did come back to bite me a couple times. Um, but I sold that. I moved locations, got married the same summer and my wife joined me and we just tried to grow it as much as we can by continuing to maintain payroll. Um, but it was all incremental growth, nothing excessive. Then in 2014, after the second time that I almost sold the restaurant, um, I realized, okay, we need to do something else. I'd owned it for 10 years. I didn't want this to be my entire life. I was in my mid thirties. So not clearly not old, but I felt like most of my twenties were gone with owning this restaurant and I wanted to change that. Um, so I, I, I found out the term of, uh, or the idea of positioning, which is, you know, what, how your business is viewed in the mind of your customer. And at the time our position was slow service and that's where my grandparents eat. Um, Cause we were still just a very generic family restaurant. And I was like, okay, we got to change this. So the pivotal moment was my wife and I were actually trying to get pregnant and we had heard that gluten, gluten uh, can be an issue. So we both went gluten-free for a period of time and we were traveling in South Carolina trying to have breakfast at a, at a restaurant and there was no options. And I was like, you know what? I think we can, we can make some changes and start almost position our restaurant as a, as a clean and allergy friendly restaurant. Cause we also ate without as much artificial colors and flavors. And you know, we tried to eat organically and stuff like that. And so it was a big change to go from the 44th street diner to what we hoped it to be. Um, so we started this process of rebranding to noble restaurant. Uh, most of our menu was, was able to be gluten-free and we started to grow. Um, we also had a customer database that I started way back in 08 using sending uh, letters in the mail. And that turned into um, coupon sheets, which turned into postcards. And eventually it moved to text messaging because printing 500 letters and envelopes and stamping them and addressing them every month was exhausting. So texting was my main marketing outlet. So that combined with the change in my position, I was able to communicate what we were doing to when I sold, we had 2000 members in my database. Um, and so I, I created the position. We changed the branding, changed the food we were offering a little bit. It wasn't a crazy change. It, it happened over a couple of years because we weren't at the point where I wanted to risk all my customers leaving. Um, but over those years from let's say 2015, when we became noble to before selling, we really became well known as a very safe uh, gluten-free restaurant or, or can be for uh, celiacs. And right before I sold, we added a ton of vegan options 
And, you know, if you go on Yelp and you search Grand Rapids area for any of those keywords, vegan, gluten-free, dairy-free, clean eating, we're usually in the top five and the only breakfast restaurant or the, the, the top breakfast restaurant. And we're, and we're 15 minutes, 10 minutes outside of Grand Rapids. So we really did a good job repositioning our brand to fill a couple of these different niches. Love it. How did you handle uh, the safety issues? Because I, I know, um, you know, I try to eat gluten-free. I'm not allergic to gluten, but I just try to cut. And sometimes when I say, hey, can I get a gluten-free bun if I'm getting a burger? They'll say, is that an allergy or is that just a preference? And I guess if it's an allergy, they have to kind of like do scrub some grill down in some other part of the kitchen. Like how did, did you guys take that all stuff super seriously or what happened there? You know, we, we definitely had a, uh, a mixed kitchen and we had, we did have gluten items in our kitchen, but we were able to, our, our deep fryer was completely gluten-free. So French fries, chicken strips, onion rings, all of that were gluten-free. So that issue, there was an issue there. And then we had one grill, we had two grills. So one of them was dedicated gluten-free. So we didn't cook pancakes or French toast on it. It was all the gluten-free buns and meats and um, the gluten-free French toast. And then our, our waffles were also, we didn't sell gluten waffles. We only sold gluten-free. So we don't have to worry about, is this a gluten-free waffle or a gluten waffle? Um, so we just made some significant changes and really sort of went all in on becoming a very reliable restaurant. And we still, we, we've, a rare occasion, someone would say, Hey, I think this happened. And, you know, so we're not perfect, but I think we've gone above and beyond to make sure that if you are a celiac or trying to eat gluten-free, um, that there will be as little, if, if not, hopefully any gluten in your, in your food when it comes to your table. Give us a sense of how this rebranding and repositioning to kind of a clean eating facility how how big an impact did that have on your financials? I'd, I'd be particularly interested in, in both the impacts it had on your top line revenue, but also your bottom line profitability. Mm-hmm. So like I said, the first 10 years, we probably grew at the rate of inflation, two, three, four percent give or take. Um, the last three years, so pretty much the three years that we were noble, we were growing roughly around 20%, if not a little bit more. Um, and so, and that's top line revenue. Uh, so that was significant. The, the, at, the, at every time we made a change, our revenue would dip a little bit because we'd always end up pissing off a couple customers or a bunch of them. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of groups that just wanted cheap black water and toast, and they realized that they couldn't get that for $2 anymore. They would go and find a different restaurant to offer, you know, coffee and toast for cheap. And we realized, you know, it's okay. And I think a lot of my staff struggled with it, thinking that we're going to upset some customers but I tried so hard to communicate, you know, it's okay if we upset, we can't please everyone and we want to focus. This is what we're going to own. We're going to own this space. And if there are others that we can't, you know, give them a, a uh, their ideal experience, which is cheap food, then, then we're not going to do that. Um, so that, that helped make room for higher paying customers, especially on the weekends. Cause we started to really grow on the weekends. Um, so instead of our average tickets went from, six something to 10 or 11 by the time I sold it's over three years, almost doubled our average ticket. Uh, Revenue went up, you know, 20, 30% Our food costs. We went down a little bit, not, not as much, but our, our product, our quality, the quality of our products significantly went higher. We were buying a lot of organic eggs and 
um, high quality proteins and non, uh, no artificial nitrates bacon. So a lot of our items were almost double the cost of the standard chicken breast or, or bacon, but we were able to maintain our cost of goods percentage by the increase of price that we could demand because we were offering things that very few restaurants around us were offering. So our sales, I mean, they really did well. They went up, like I said, 20%, uh, revenue, revenue, uh, I mean, uh, profitability went up a little bit because as we grew, we had to increase payroll and Grand Rapids during this time and continues to today is expanding in the culinary scene. A lot of restaurants are opening and there's only a limited number of staff that can work in these restaurants, especially with the low unemployment rate. So it's a real difficult time right now for restaurants to find staffing. So we, I decided to stop really not worry about what I was paying my staff and just make sure we had staff. So I was increasing wages. I was adding staff. Uh, when I sold, we had 25 employees, which was more than um, I could wrap my mind around. But that, that hurt our profitability for those first two years. But then the final year, final six months before I sold, our, our sales have grew, grew so much that the profits then came along with it. And, uh, you know, by the time I sold it, it was, it was chucking right along pretty good. Andrew, it's funny because, you know, you had, you, you wanted to sell this company almost from the get go. Like you bought <laughs> it, you realized it wasn't what you thought it was and you kind of started listing the business. You said, I think you tried five or six times. You know, one question I'm having is you, you change this business model, you focus in and it seemed to have had a, a really, you know, fantastic impact on the financials and the company. Why, why did you want to sell it after this amazing improvement? I asked myself a lot of that. I asked myself that a lot the last three months before we sold. Um, so January of 2017, 2018 came and I had just done my P&Ls and I liked what I saw. Um, we had a, a two-year-old son and we were trying, we were working on another kid um, and it was hard raising a family owning a, a, a restaurant. That's, that's supposed open. to be the fun part. The working, <laughs> the trying, that's the fun part. The having and the dealing with them and managing is the unfun part. Yeah. Um, so this is family, family played a role of, yeah. you know what? I want to be there for my kids and being gone every Saturday and Sunday or most Saturday and Sundays, um, or at least at minimum being on call every Saturday and Sunday was difficult for, for my wife and kids. Our sales were good. My, the person, the uh, company that bought us had recently purchased my closest competitor. So I knew there may have been an opportunity and I was just like, you know what? It's time. It's, it's, I've owned it for 13 plus years. Um, I, there weren't really for the growth we were having, I didn't have the right or enough systems in place. Um, and that made me nervous. I was nervous that, you know, it could all come crashing down because, mm. um, we were growing so, so much. And I was like, I have something really good. When do you want to sell a business? Probably when it's growing, not when it's struggling and you're having to use Groupon or other things to just get butts in seats. And yeah, so, I mean, you've gone through that, right? You knew how hard it was to sell a business that was struggling. For sure. So, so give us a sense. You, you said you, at the time of the sale, you were roughly 25 employees. Are you able to share sort of kind of revenue or profits? Like just give us a sense of how big the company was 
uh, if you can, if not, that's okay too. Yep. Um, revenue was low seven digits. Uh, and I was, I'll just say, I, I feel we we're very profitable for a, for an independent breakfast and lunch restaurant. Fantastic. And so what did you do? How did you market the business to, to how did you ultimately find a seller, a buyer? Well, I, I, because I'd used six or seven different uh, business brokers, um, I figured, you know what, I'm just going to try it on my own. And so I really only talked to rest, uh, the, the business, the restaurant partners that purchased my, my restaurant. I had known him cause I talked to him a couple years prior when we were much smaller and they were interesting. They weren't uh, interested, but I was like, you know what? I think I'm gonna go back there. I think we now have a sellable business that he may be interested in. He had just bought so my this closest is, competitor. This is the company restaurant partners, partners Inc. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. RP, RPI. And they're, and they're based in Grand Rapids. They are. Yeah. And okay. they own maybe 10 different brands and 20 different, you know, actual restaurants, but some of the restaurants have multiple locations, but they own all these, uh, a wide variety, a number of breakfast brands and a couple, you know, dinner places, mainly in West Michigan, a couple North of here. So you oh, knew yeah. the guys at RPI. I did. Yep. Cause I and talked about years ago. And so what was their reaction when you called up? They said, come on in, let's chat. So I went in and you know, we, we talked a little about it. We talked the growth that I had. We signed an NDA. Um, what they, did you think the company was worth, Andrew? Like, did you have a sense of what either you thought it was worth or what you wanted for the company? You know, restaurants generally, from what I read, sell between one to three EBITDA. And myself feeling that we were a well-positioned restaurant that had you know, a very, a good um, place in the marketplace. We had some, um, some niche offerings that were hard to replicate for other businesses. I was hoping on the, you know, on the higher side of that, but I knew lack of systems. Um, the fact that I was still pretty involved in the restaurant. I mean, I could take a week off, no problem. Could I take, you know, three months off? No, that I wouldn't sure. I would know what would come, what I would come back to. Um, so I, I knew it would be somewhere, you know, in the, in the hoping for the two to three multiple. Um, Got it. Got it. So did, so you get into this conversation with RPI, where does it go from there? They started making multiple visits. They had a couple of their managers come for meals, just unannounced privately. They didn't, you know, they didn't call me from the back and chat with me or anything. Just to get a, a feeling, a sense of how busy you are. They came weekday lunches, week weekend lunches, breakfasts, all different times to just sort of try to verify my, my statement of, Hey, we're a busy restaurant. We're doing good. And did they ever come in unannounced or in disguise? Yep. Every time. Yeah. They never mentioned they were coming in. I don't think any employees knew uh, that they were who they were, that they were coming in or anything like that. So they're just taking their families in. I think they did a meeting once there. So they just, Probably maybe a dozen times. But you knew who they were and therefore you knew when they were in the restaurant. If I was in the diner at the time, I may have been in the office. I may not have been there. So I think I probably saw them twice during that month plus period when they came in. And did you like grab the server and say, okay, see the guys over in table 36, treat them really, really nicely. I wasn't concerned about that more. So I stepped on the line and saw their order come through and be like, okay, guys, this order, this is the order we want to really, you know, make sure it's right. 
Nice. Nice. Okay, good. So you're, you're into the RPI. So when did RPI get serious and put a, a number on the table? Did they say, Andrew, what do you want for your restaurant? And, or, or did they kind of come to you with a number? I wish they would have come to me for a number, but one of my probably greatest lessons was, yeah, never be the first one if you're the seller to, uh, to choose a number, but that's what I did. He asked me, what are you hoping for? And not being, I mean, he's probably purchased at least a dozen different entities over the last 20 years. So he was well more well-versed in the buying and selling than I was. Um, so I picked my number that I wanted and that automatically created the ceiling for how much I would get for it. And he quickly, uh, and wisely and, and good for him. He knew what he was doing. He knocked that number down significantly and we ended at a price that was, he was willing and I was, I was willing as well but I was hoping for more, but I should have let them start with the number and then, you know, go up from there. What were the rationale or the reasons that RPI gave you that they weren't prepared to pay you what you wanted? What were, and I'd be just curious to know what some of those reasons were for other listeners going into the sale process, whether they can start to mitigate some of those potential discounting factors early. And a lot of it was my involvement. Um, they would say, you know, how many hours a week do you spend um, in the business and some of those things. And then they'd annualize that out and take that away, even though the number I proposed was the EBITDA, including my, my, uh, my paycheck, we'll say. So I, I, it was a, they did a great job. I mean, they were, like I said, very skilled at negotiations. And I think he saw during our conversation, the areas where, Hey, I think, you know, he mentioned this, I'm going to, I'm going to hit him on this to knock that price down to down a little bit. And they just, they, they out negotiated me. So I think the biggest thing would be don't start with a number. If you can, if you can all avoid it. Got it. Let the buyer come to you with their number. We've thrown it this acronym EBITDA. Let me talk directly to my listeners and let them know if it's earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. So essentially, you know, a way of expressing profitability before tax. Um, usually when a company sells, you know, in expressing EBITDA, they've got a line item for the, for the owner or equivalent, a general manager's sort of salary. Mm -hmm. So they go through the process of kind of normalization to try to normalize or adjust the, the, the profitability of the company, uh, try to figure out what it would cost or how much profit the company would make once you, the owner kind of steps away and they bring in a manager to replace you. So when you talked about EBITDA uh, and thinking that, you know, restaurant sells for one to three and you were hoping for the high side of that, are, you're assuming that there's a, a salary for the owner in, in that uh, is deducted, you know, from is an expense of the business before you express EBITDA. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I had a, a full-time manager at the time. Um, so I did, you know, I did put my, like all of my income um, into that calculated number. Mm. But I also knew that technically if I walked away, you know, no, because it was a restaurant group, the people doing the payroll were going to be the one in corporate and other things. So I knew that corporate would be taking over a lot of my duties. And so I felt it, it made sense to me that, hey, I've, I have my full-time manager doing the the day in day out stuff, but then corporate's going to take over a lot of stuff that I do as the owner. And so that was my justification to, um, 
you know, coming up with the, the valuation that I did. Right. And, and they then responded and said, yeah, but Andrew, you know, you're, you're part of the secret sauce here. We can't just rely on your manager. We need, you know, we need to take into consideration some of the hours that you're, you're personally putting into ordering supplies and doing marketing and bookkeeping. Is that mm-hmm. basically what yep. they- And they said, you know, we, we take a, a percent from each restaurant, um, whatever it is, as they, you know, expense out to the too corporate to do those things. And that made sense. But, you know, it was, it, I think if I would have started the number higher, we, we would have probably still sold it at a higher amount. Um, if I would have started the number lower, it would have been lower. So I, I think he just found the, the chink in my armor and knew he could squeeze, you know, a little bit out of me. And, and that's fair. I, I came in a, a little underprepared. I should have probably not replied to his request in that meeting and, and said, let me think about it for a night or two. But sometimes I'm too, uh, forthright in, in offering up my thoughts, knowledge, whatever. If you had it to do over again, how would you answer that question? Because I think every, every seller, every small business owner who goes to sell their company is going to have to dance around that question, right? So at some point the buyer is going to turn to you and say, okay, Andrew, what do you want for this thing? Mm -hmm. How, how would you answer it if you could answer it now? You know, I think I would start with, well, you've purchased a dozen plus businesses just like mine, what, what do you think it's worth? Knowing, knowing where we are financially, knowing what our position is in the marketplace, being a leader in a number of up and coming culinary trends, you know, what would you value at it? And that would at least, you know, if they said a ridiculously low number, then I don't really lose. I just have more negotiating. But if they say a, a higher number that I would have started with, then I'm already, I'm already ahead of the game. Um, I think another thing is I would have probably looked for one other potential buyer. Um, I think for this type of business, it's hard to probably find too many buyers for it because we're not big enough to, you know, really get a lot of attention, but we're not small enough that just a, uh, maybe a restaurant manager that has um, some experience or something like that could, could then purchase it. So it was, we were at a tricky point where, I knew if I didn't, didn't sell to them, there may be limited number of other people in my, in my area that would be willing to look at a place like mine. So I think if I would have spent a little more time looking for one other potential candidate that could have helped my negotiations a lot. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Having that competitive sort of uh, marketplace built for and getting, getting some multiple offers. Did, did, did you ever reflect after a glass of wine or whatever and think, man, maybe I just hang on to it. Like their RPI is going to pay me, I don't know, so, you know, somewhere between one and three times, even hopefully on the, on the higher end of that. But if I just hung on to the business for two or three years, essentially, I'd get all of that profit and still own the company. Did, did that thought ever creep into your mind? Every day. Um, pretty much since, I think we agreed on a price maybe late February, early March. And starting in March, the business hockey sticked. We were growing 30% uh, year to, or compared to the previous year's month. And I would come home and tell my wife, I was like, what am I doing? We are, the restaurant has finally achieved what I've been trying to for 14 years. And now we're under contract to sell. And so we had a lot of difficult conversations about not necessarily do you, do we back out? I don't think I seriously went down that road, 
but it was trying realizing that I had worked 13 plus years to get to this point and we arrived and it's for sale or it's, it's under contract. So yeah, we talked a lot about that. The restaurant just became very profitable starting January, February is usually pretty slow in the restaurant business in, uh, in Michigan. But once March came, we were doing great. And, and, but I kept remembering the, the struggles. I'm not the best at managing people. And with 25 employees, um, it's, you're really just managing people at that point. Um, I also knew that at any point something could change. They could do road construction in front of our restaurant and, or something like that. And everything could change. So I knew you want to sell a restaurant when it's doing good and growing and growing a lot. And so that was a driving factor. Plus at that point we were, uh, knew we were pregnant with our second child and I knew that it just felt like the right thing to do for the family um, to call it good on, on this first uh, 10 year of my life and move on to, to something else. So, but it was difficult. I'm not going to lie. It was very emotionally trying because I wasn't working much those last three months before we sold it. Um, because we had managers and tons of employees and a pretty good, uh, retention rate for staff and growing sales and huge profitability. So it was, it was really emotional those last few months. And that was about a year ago now, right? Yep. Exactly. A year ago. Yeah. So as, as we sit here now, I guess spring 2019, how do you reflect on, on, on the same sort of idea today, given a year's worth of water under the bridge? Mm -hmm. um, I'm thankful we got to close. I think I read a Forbes article that said what 90% of business listings never sell. And I think that number is probably worse for restaurants, especially restaurants that are just independently operated. Um, so I know, you know, if I wouldn't have, who knows what would be, hopefully we'd still be growing and it'd be great. But, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't love my position in the business. It didn't, it didn't use my strengths. It was really difficult um, to turn that business around after not wanting to own it for 10 plus years to then almost go all in continually to, uh, to improve it. But I knew I, I didn't have another option. Um, so it is, I'm thankful that we are out. It is still difficult sometimes. Um, a, the community you know, I had, I had employees who I considered my friends. Um, I had some, you know, purpose to my day. We'll say we did, we did good stuff. I know a number of customers are, are disappointed that I sold. Um, I, I tried to really separate myself from the business in the last two years because I didn't want it to be Andrew's restaurant that was being sold. I wanted it to be Noble restaurant and I didn't want prospective buyers to be like, well, if, if Andrew's not out there BSing with the customers or pouring coffee, will they come back? Um, so I made that clear distinction that I'm not going to be um, the guy walking around chatting with everyone. I'm going to walk to my office, do my thing, leave, say hi. I'm not going to be rude, but I tried to separate myself from, from the business. Um, but it's still, it was a home for 13 or 14 years. I still go back there maybe once a month for breakfast or do takeout or something. It's, it, it's still a little, a little emotional. Um, but I'm, I'm super thankful. They did a great job with the transition. They made all the transitioning, all the, uh, you know, behind the, behind the scenes stuff really 
good. And I, I think I still have a, a pretty good relationship with the organization. How long did you have to work in the restaurant after selling it? Sold on a Tuesday and I think like 12 days. <laughs> wow, that is incredible. I'm surprised that you were able to get out so so easily and so quickly. Well, they, they did a great job with like changing internet and telephone and utilities. Like I would literally get emails saying, Hey, your music service provider has been changed and this and that. So it was that transition was, they did it almost flawlessly and quickly. How Um, did they, how did they lock in your general manager, the person who was running the company day to day? Well, two months before our expected sales date, she tells me, Hey, come July, I'm moving to Florida. Um, So that was one of the, you know, hiccups that we had to get through. So I told them, I think probably mid-April, I was like, just a heads up, my manager, um, she'll be with you for just about a month and then she's leaving town. I thought that was going to cancel the deal for sure. Um, it did not. They they knew about it. They knew that they had to, and their plan was, I think, to bring in other managers that they had trained in other restaurants there and work with my manager. But once they knew that, they knew that they would be replacing said manager. Um, so that, that went, you know, the way it did, I'm I'm not going to say there weren't some missteps. They struggled as I think most transitions, um, do the first month or so with losing some staff and just, just integrating my business into the way they do what they do. Um, but yeah, I was only there 12 days. I had family vacation on the 4th, 4th of July. And I told them I want to be done by whatever is that Monday or that Sunday. And so they, we closed the deal two weeks before that. And I worked my last weekend and, you know, I had a little bit of a consulting payout through the end of the year. And I was thinking, Oh, I'm going to get called multiple times a day. I'll have to swing by there. So on and so forth. They called me once during that seven month period and then called me one other time in early January after the consulting agreement, but no big deal. So yeah, how it was, was the consulting agreement. Right. How was the consulting agreement structured? What, was that a, a fixed amount of money that you were guaranteed or was it sort of, you were going to build them by the hour, by the day, if they needed you or how did you structure that? No, it was a, it was part of the purchase price. So the purchase price had three, three components, the initial amount, the consulting, and then I, I'm carrying a note for a few years as well. Um, but the, it was laid out in the consulting that I think they could occupy or take up maybe two hours at most of my time per week, um, for, and I think that went, went down as the months went by. Um, cause I was nervous. What was that? Go ahead. No, no. You were nervous for, for what? I was nervous that I would still be pretty attached to it or they'd be calling me constantly because I'm like, this is a restaurant that I intimately know, knew now I'm, I'm hands off. It just, it seemed very hard to think within two weeks, they're going to know everything they need to operate it successfully. But they, so that's how it was. It was a, it was a guaranteed amount every month. Um, so no, no out by the hour, anything like that. And, and I was, how, did, how does the note work, Andrew? I, I, you know, for folks who don't are familiar with a term like a vendor take back or a VTB, what, how did the note work? Um, you know, because they own their corporation and they own you know, 18, 19 other restaurants, um, it was simply, they're just going to pay me X amount per month for, I think it's like four years or something. And, you know, if they failed on that, I don't remember what my recourse was, but I didn't really explore that a whole lot because, um, 
I was pretty confident that they weren't going to, uh, you know, fail on that. And thus far, their payments come in on the first every month, and and things have gone extremely smoothly. Not not one hiccup post sale. What proportion of your deal was in a note? Uh, a pretty small, under under twenty five percent. Got it. So it wasn't a huge sort of no. percentage of the. But it's still meaningful. Yeah. No, but I considered it in previous the two previous two deals that I had, or the previous one that had a note. I considered it as, hey, it's it's a bonus if I if this check comes in the mail every month, and I sort of thought of it that way with this deal as well. But they've shown themselves to be very um, honest and have integrity when it comes to that. So, yeah, it just check comes in and it'll keep coming in for another three or so years. And Andrew, what um, what are you up to now? Like, what's what's next on the horizon for you? Yep. I took a few months off. Well, that few turned into maybe a few too many, but we, uh, we, we welcomed our second child in October. So we took the summer off. Thank you. I took the summer off. My wife had just a rough last month of pregnancy. So September, which I was, when I was planning on starting what's next, I, I decided, well, I can take one more month off. And then October, my daughter came and I took another month off and then the holidays came. And so it just, we, we enjoyed the end of last year. Um, just sort of being with being with family, spending time together after I would say putting in my dues at a seven day a week uh, restaurant for for majority of my adult working career. Uh, currently, what I'm doing is I have uh, I'm working on a community based loyalty program for independent restaurants called Local Bites. Oh, cool. Um, so I'm, it's just, I'm very early, early stages, uh, talking to restaurants, getting a, you know, MVP created. And then my side project or being minimal viable product for those. Correct. Yep. Maybe haven't heard that acronym before. Yeah. And your yeah, side so project was my side project is helping other restaurants similar to mine, um, helping with their positioning. So figure out, you know, do you matter and who do you matter to? Cause I think a lot of restaurants in the marketplace, they just say, Hey, we have good food, open the doors. We'll hope for the best. But positioning, I think was the number one differentiator of my business of saying, Hey, what are we going to stand for? And what aren't we going to stand for? So I do that, or I'm, I'm starting to do that as a, a little side project under the handle, uh, restaurantgrowthhacker.com. Great. And is there a way for people to reach out if they wanted to connect with you on social medias or, you know, is there a website or a LinkedIn or what's the best way for people to, uh, to reach out? My email is Andrew Lampa and that's with two P's L A M P P A at Gmail, or you can find me on LinkedIn. I don't have the most developed profile. I, I just visited for the first time, I think a month ago in maybe five years. Um, so I'm trying to get that updated. And, uh, and then, yeah, Local Bites or Restaurant Growth Hacker are my two websites that I'm going to be building out over the next, you know, following months. That's awesome. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. 
Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.